I'm John Casti. I've lived in Vienna for the last 40 some odd years. I worked at an International Systems Analysis Research Center for most of that time. Uh, my educational background is all in mathematics, but in fact I've spent most of my working life developing models, studying properties of systems. So I really call myself a system scientist, not a mathematician. In recent years, my focus has been on trying to understand, anticipate, and even manage extreme events, in particular the kind of extreme events caused by human miscommunication, inaction, or maybe just plain stupidity, where uh, you get something like financial crashes, political revolutions, an epidemic, or some other kind of thing that is very, very dangerous, rare, and surprising, but not brought on by nature. I'm sitting here in Café Lantmann, one of the old classic cafés in Vienna, just across the street from the main building of the University of Vienna on the Ringstrasse. I've often come to this café with visitors because it has a kind of old-world elegance that I don't find in some of the other cafés. The city, of course, is filled with cafés. There must be hundreds of them. And there are such great tourist attractions that the city of Vienna subsidizes most of them because they don't make enough money to be able to uh, stand on their own two feet. But this cafe is special if you're interested in writing because a couple of well-known American writers did some major books here. I'm thinking about Erica Yong, who wrote a book called Fear of Flying, in which this Café Lantman played a very major part. And the American writer John Irving, he studied in Vienna, and he spent a lot of his time working out his plots and his stories, maybe even in the very place where I'm sitting right now. So the café has a certain kind of history that appeals to me. It's a long, relatively thin room with booths around the two sides and other more open kind of sitting in the center of the room with wonderful wooden paneling. It really reflects its history from the late 19th century, early 20th century. Very elegant lighting, very nice upholstery on the booths and so on. Fabric, not leather a very comfortable place to spend some time talking with a friend. Just like every other cafe in Vienna, it has extraordinarily good coffee and cakes Viennese style that are known the world around. Our theme in this series of discussions is extreme events. And by that, I mean events that are rare, surprising, and usually they do quite a bit of damage, at least in the short term. A very classic example of this was this supervolcano that now is Yellowstone National Park in the United States. It's a huge area, and that whole area is the caldera of a giant supervolcano that blew up several hundred million years ago and filled the atmosphere with dust and all sorts of nasty things that blocked out the sun for decades. Of course, with no sunlight, that means there was no energy because the sun is the source of all energy. Almost all living things, except those maybe down deep in the ocean or ones that might live very deep underground, were killed off by that supervolcano. It's a little bit ominous 
to note that just recently measurements at Yellowstone National Park give some distant early warning signs that that volcano is starting to rumble a little bit and we may be in for another explosion. The volcanologists say that this kind of volcano should erupt maybe every five, six hundred million years and that's about how long it's been since the last one. I'm not holding my breath waiting for it to happen tomorrow, but or even in my lifetime for that matter, because this time scale is so unbelievably long that no human can really imagine what it's really like. But still, even if it happened a million years from now, it would be soon in geologic time. But I want to point out that the kind of X events or extreme events, I for shorthand call them X events, that I want to talk about in this series of podcasts are mostly the kind generated by human activity. They have an effect on humans both as individuals but even more importantly as social groups. I'm thinking about events, minor ones like fashions that people like at a certain period or the political movements that are unfolding or I mentioned earlier financial crashes or booms that are the outcome of a collection of human beings interacting. So an X event is not so much a single person flipping out, but it's a whole group flipping out. So now the time has come to leave Cafe Lotman and take a stroll back to my own apartment, which is only a 10-minute walk from here. What you see in front of us, that building directly in front of us, that's the headquarters of the government. That's the chancellor's offices in uh, Austria. This whole area is all part of the former imperial, um, the monarchy uh, buildings and the government and so on. And they've just all been cleaned up since those times. They probably look pretty ratty after the Second World War. Um, as far as the recent elections in Austria, it was a big shock to the structures that have been in place in this country since the end of the Second World War. The Conservative Party got the most votes, but they didn't get more than half, so they have to form a coalition government with one of the other parties. And they have only two choices. They have a choice of the current governing party, which is the Socialist Party, or they have a choice of going with the, I don't want to call them radical right, but a pretty far-right party, the so-called Freedom Party. I feel sorry for this young chancellor, Mr. Sebastian Kurz, who got elected at the age of 31 to be the uh, chief political officer for the whole country, because he has to make a choice. Do I go with the Socialist, the Red Party? Do I go with the Freedom Party, the Blues. Either way, he's going to get a lot of heat. If he goes with the Socialists, from outside of Austria, everybody will breathe a big sigh of relief, especially in Brussels. But they won't be breathing a big sigh of relief in Austria. If he goes with the Freedom Party, he'll get a lot of applause here inside Austria, but he'll get huge heat from the rest of Europe. I think that in the end, his election will be a kind of Pyrrhic victory. And I'll be very interested to see how he handles it. <laughs> Let's go down this way. 
This street, we're on a street called Spiegelgasse. The rest are all offices of the Catholic Church. Where's Scott? And they are the owner of this building. So real nice and quiet. After five o'clock weekends, nobody's in this house but me and my neighbor across the hall. So we're sitting here in my apartment, which becomes increasingly smaller as the number of books becomes larger. I think at the moment there's probably about 10,000 books sitting surrounding us in this conversation, and many of them are focused on where philosophy becomes scientific and science becomes a bit philosophical, and that's just the right area for trying to understand and manage extreme events. I came to Vienna initially in 1973. The year before that, I was working in an institute of the Soviet Academy of Sciences in Moscow. It just happened that the person who headed the laboratory I worked in was the main Soviet negotiator for a new uh, institute, a joint institute between the Soviet Academy and the U.S. National Academy of Science to study questions of common interest to the industrialized countries. He told me about this institute. His name was Alex, Alex Litov, said it would be in Vienna and asked me if I would like to come there. I said, gee, Alex, coming to that sexy new institute in Vienna sounds a lot more interesting than being a junior professor in Tucson, Arizona, so let me know when you're in business. I went back then to Arizona, and a couple months later, I got a telegram from him, no email in those days, saying, we're in business, when are you coming? About 20 seconds later, I wrote back and said, as soon as possible. So I came in June of 1973, to be one of the first researchers in this International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis just outside Vienna. Since that time, I have been in and out of love with Vienna. I made a couple of very good faith efforts to escape. In 1976, I went to New York and was a professor at New York University in Princeton. But shortly after that, in 1982, I came back to Vienna, this time for a girl, not for a job, and I ended up marrying this girl, to my credit, I would say. I still work at this same institute until 1992 when I went to the Santa Fe Institute in Santa Fe, New Mexico, the Institute of Complexity Sciences, and returned back to Vienna in 2003, and I've been here ever since. When I came back here in 2003, I did not come back to work in the same institute. I came back to be in Vienna, I started a new center of my own called the X Center Vienna, which is a center for research in system science and especially extreme events. But shortly afterward, the former colleagues I had in the institute outside Vienna 
said, why don't you come back and join us? So I came back in a part-time basis in 2005 when there was a new director. I started then a new project that I was head of. It was on extreme events in human society. For three, four years, I headed that project, and then I left the institute. In the institute that I had formed earlier, the X Center, I continued studying extreme events. When I encounter a new customer for our company, X Event Dynamics, I ask them, what kind of extreme event are you worried about? What is the nature of the event that if it happens, it can blow you out of the water completely? That's question one. Second question is, what are you currently doing to protect yourself against that eventuality? Then the client will tell me I'm interested in crash of the internet or I'm interested in some dramatic new government regulations that might impact my business or whatever. And to buy some insurance against that happening, this is what I'm doing. I will then try and match what they're doing with what kinds of things we might be able to do to address their concerns with the tools that we have from our company. The tools that we have available are both mathematical and computational. Some of them I would even call psychological or social. Those tools are more in the direction of trying to anticipate an extreme event, an X event. Other tools are more focused on how to manage an X event. And by that, I mean, what should you be doing today by way of your management strategy of your life or your company or your country so that when an extreme event, the ones that you worry about, it actually takes place, you won't get blown away by it. In fact, you might end up even being a beneficiary of it. And those tools are primarily computational. You need to have a laboratory to test whether or not what you're currently doing is going to work or not work or somewhere in between or how well it might work. But unfortunately, unlike in physics, engineering, chemistry, and whatever, we don't have any parts of the real world that we can fence off and take into a laboratory and do experiments. If you have some mad theory of finance, you can't go down to Wall Street and ask them to change the rules today to test your theory. And even if you could do that, you could never repeat the experiment. So instead, our view is that you should try and build what in today's terminology is called a digital twin, namely a copy of the part of the real world that relates to your questions and your strategies inside your computer. If you do that, then you can use that digital twin, if you like, as a laboratory for doing these experiments. Actually, this digital twin is not so mysterious. It's a lot like a big computer game. You have lots of players. They're each making decisions and doing something, and those decisions interact to create a change in the situation. There's a playing field that the game takes place on, and there's a set of rules for how to play the game. Now, some players may decide they don't want to play within the rules. They'll be renegades or criminals or whatever. They might do better than the ones who play within the rules, but they have to run a risk of being taken out of the game because of the violation of the rules. And that's what we do to try and give them a laboratory for testing potential strategies in a world in which they can get some insight into whether these things are any good or not, and if they're not, if they change to something else, if they're adaptive, maybe then something else will work better. 
oftentimes people ask, they say, well, what's the best strategy? The answer is there is no best strategy because the best strategy depends on what everybody else is doing. And you don't know what everybody else is doing. You may have some partial information about what they're doing, but you don't have any um, real knowledge about what they're doing. Let me give you an example. Suppose you were designing uh, road traffic flow systems for a big city. You had a river running through the city, and you needed to build a bridge across this river. And you wanted to know where to build this bridge. Now, one way to do that is you go into the real city and you build a real bridge. It costs you $15 million to do it, to discover, gee, this bridge would have worked better if it was uh, three streets down the road. On the other hand, you can build an electronic copy of that road traffic network in that city in your computer, and it might cost you $50,000 to build that copy, but then you can lay in a bridge of a different capacity, different size, and whatever, anywhere you like. You can test out to see whether it works or not. At any stage in the process, you could drop in an extreme event and all of a sudden see whether the strategy you're using now absorbs that and you just keep going or you get blown away by it. I'll give you an example. A few years ago, I did a study of this type for the world's catastrophe insurance industry. These were a collection of different primary insurers, the kind you go to to buy insurance on your house or your shopping center or whatever, and reinsurers, the kind of insurers that the primary insurers go to if they think they have too much risk, and they can sell some of that risk to a reinsurer for a price. They were interested in hurricanes and earthquakes in different geographic parts of the world. Take Japan, where they have both hurricanes and earthquakes. Take California, where basically you just have earthquakes, and the Gulf Coast, where you just have hurricanes. What they wanted to know is, are the strategies I'm using today going to enable me to survive if there's a force five hurricane that comes in and wipes out Miami Beach, which almost happened a few months ago, actually. They have to make all sorts of decisions, the management of these companies. They have to decide how much risk to take on for a particular kind of event in a particular geographic region, what prices to charge, and so on. They also have to worry about the money that comes in every month or every year when no extreme events are happening. They have to figure out, what am I going to do with that money? Because I'm not paying it out. But on the other hand, I have to have a certain amount of it available that I can pay out overnight. I can't lock it up for a year or two years or whatever. Some I can, some not. So as you run this digital twin, at some random moments, you can have the system drop a hurricane of a certain magnitude in Florida. Or you can have the system have an earthquake in California and see what happens. Or you can deliberately pick a time and say, well, if in this year there's an earthquake in Japan of this magnitude, what does it do to me? Does it blow me out of the water, or do I get a big benefit from it? You can play any kind of game you want in this world. The types of extreme events we might look at are as varied as the number of potential customers we might have. A customer might be a corporation, Tobacco company, for example, who's worried about illicit trading, smuggling. That's an X event for them. A customer might be a high net worth individual who has investments in certain parts of the world and is wondering about a political revolution in Venezuela or something. 
or they might be a constellation of countries like the European Union who are worried about countries like the UK dropping out. And that's an X event for the European Union. And what's the impact going to be? Every client is different, and each client has a different set of concerns. First of all, events in general, extreme events or otherwise, all events, and by an event I mean a change of state in the system from its current state to something else, something has changed. They are all caused by a combination of two factors, a context within which the event unfolds, That context specifies all the possible next states, the ones that might happen. And then a random trigger that enters in and pulses the system from the outside and picks out from that set of possibilities the event that you actually get. That random trigger, it's random. You can't predict it. And that's why it's very difficult to predict or forecast events in the human sphere as opposed to physics or chemistry or engineering because the random trigger in those other domains is not very random at all. But the closer you get to human activities, the more random it becomes. Geometrically, or you could imagine the situation where the context is some kind of landscape consisting of flat plateaus and valleys and hillsides and sharp mountain peaks and so on, but one that is always shifting, dynamically shifting. By my theory, the drivers of that shifting, there are two main drivers. One is psychological, mass psychology. It's what I call social mood. It's the belief that a population has in a certain area, region, about its future. Do they think their future will be better than today? They're optimistic, they're looking forward to that future, then that's positive social mood. If they're fearing the future rather than welcoming, that's negative social mood. And the kinds of events that you can expect to see change dramatically depending on whether the polarity is positive or negative. In positive social mood, you tend to get events that you would describe as welcoming, joining, happy, and so on. And in the negative social mood case, you get just the opposite. Instead of joining, you get separating. Instead of welcoming, you get rejecting, and so on. So that's one of the drivers. The other driver is what I call complexity overload, complexity mismatches, where you have two or more systems in interaction of different levels of complexity, which are also dynamically shifting. Say, take the financial sector. You have the financial services sector and the regulators. They each have their own level of complexity. Roughly speaking, the number of independent actions that they're able to take at any given moment That's a measure of your complexity. If the complexity levels are approximately equal, then you don't have big stress. But as one system starts becoming much more complex than the other, then it becomes a little bit like pulling a rubber band. You keep stretching it, and you can start feeling the tension in your arms. And if you foolishly keep stretching it and don't voluntarily reduce the stress, then nature or human nature steps in and says, well, if you won't do this stress reduction, I'll have to do it for you. And the way nature does it is not very pretty. You get a crash. 
it breaks. That's what happened in a lot of uh, financial meltdowns that we've seen. The last one was in 2007. More or less, they all come about because of this complexity overload, this complexity mismatch. So at a particular moment, you might be sitting in the landscape on a flat plateau like this tabletop, and it takes a huge random trigger to push you off of it, unless you're right on the edge, which is pretty unlikely. And so you could sit there for a very long time. But as time goes on, that plateau, it may morph into a mountain peak, and you may not even notice it until you look around and say, where is everybody? What happened here? And then even a small random trigger can push you off the edge. And I'll give you a very current example of that. Mr. Weinstein from Hollywood, Harvey Weinstein. That was a guy, in my opinion, who was sitting on a nice flat plateau for many, there's some demonstration down, I better close the window. The sounds that you're hearing in the background, definitely the shouts and enthusiasms of a football group cheering on their club in the game tonight in Vienna. But to get back to Mr. Harvey Weinstein, I think that this is a good illustration of this landscape of events because for decades he was sitting on a nice flat plateau where almost no random trigger could push him off and the risk factor was actually pretty low. But as time went on and social moods changed, that plateau became a mountain peak and he didn't know he was on a mountain peak. But when you're on it, it only takes a very small random trigger to push you off in some direction or another. And in his case, I think that random trigger was the article in the New York Times on October 5th, basically a big expose of his whole history in using his powerful position to intimidate various aspiring or even uh, actual actresses in Hollywood. And of course, he got pushed off that mountain peak down into a deep valley the question for him will be, is he ever going to be able to recover or dig out from that valley? Usually, if you have an X event happen, you get a lot of damage in the short term. But later on, if you survive that X event, you'll look back and you'll say, wow, that wasn't the worst thing that ever happened. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. Because that X event wipes out all sorts of social structures that have outlived their usefulness. And there's new niches that open up for new services and products and ways of doing business that would never be there if the old power structures were still in place. An essential element of human progress is that those X events have to happen. So you should just focus your energy on how to manage them, not prevent them. I guess now it's going to be time for dinner, and so we'll have another session tomorrow. <laughs>